And please open to 1 Corinthians 4. Our text this morning is 1 Corinthians 4, 8 to 21. Welcome to those of you visiting. We're in a verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Corinthians. One of the reasons we go verse by verse, there are a number of them, we've talked about this before in our church, but one of the reasons is because we tend to not skip passages that you would normally otherwise skip if you weren't going verse by verse through the Bible. Today's passage is one that you will rarely hear as a standalone sermon by a guest preacher. It's a sermon that is strongly worded. It's a passage that's strongly worded. It's a passage that admonishes people, warns people. It's a passage that calls out Christians, certain Christians. And I pray that it will be a help to all of us as it's inspired by the Holy Spirit Himself. So it's an important passage. 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 21. This is the last passage before Paul turns a corner in the book. I've told you for the last number of uh, months, we've been studying a section that we're calling divided over leaders. This church had a unity problem, this church in Corinth. They were divided over their leaders. They were favoring one leader over another. They were failing to listen to certain leaders, namely the Apostle Paul. You'll see that here in this passage. They had bitter struggles against one another, and Paul writes really as his first order of priority to go at that reality. Now, some of you know the book of 1 Corinthians, you know all of the problems in the church at Corinth. You know about them allowing sexual immorality, which we'll get to next week. You know that they were, some of them were suing one another. You know about their jealousy over certain spiritual gifts. You know about their wrong view or incomplete view of the fact that our bodies will all rise again one day, we'll have glorified bodies. They had a lot of issues in that church. But after Paul gives thanks for them in chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, he then starts with this issue. And he spends two and a half chapters talking about their divisiveness, their wrongly viewing their leaders, their wrongly viewing their life as followers of Christ. So he he goes right at this wrong view of who they are and their wrong view of what ministry looks like. And so today we come to the end of really his first thing that he wants to address in them, his first concern that he has in them. Next week, again in chapter 5, verse 1, he starts off with these words, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and he goes on, but but he turns the corner into some things, other things that he's been hearing. So again, two and a half chapters on divisiveness in the church, wrong, wrong view of leaders, wrong view of the ministry, wrong view of even their life, we'll see that today. And then next week, hey, I've also heard about you allowing sexual morality. And then in chapter 6, I've also heard about you suing one another, some of you. And then starting in chapter 7, they're gonna, he's going to answer some questions that they've sent to him. So it's kind of like an extended Q&A time with Apostle Paul. But again, what I want you to see is he's finishing off today with his main concern, his first concern for them. Let me read 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 21. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And with it, you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. 
We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? I've entitled this message, Remember Our Cross. Remember Our Cross. The words admonishment and sarcasm are really not always comfortable words or comfortable realities. When someone admonishes you, it's not always pleasant, is it? When someone warns you about something that you're doing that's not good, we don't always respond well to admonishment. Or when someone uses sarcasm to get our attention. I grew up in, a, in an extended family where we were very sarcastic, very sarcastic. You're probably thinking, Yes, I'm probably aware of that. Um, Those of you who know me, I've been working on it for a long time now. (laughs) We were very sarcastic, and then I got married, and I tried some sarcasm with my beloved bride, and she made it clear that that doesn't really fly anymore, and and I'm grateful for that. (laughs) The Lord really showed me and is continuing to show me that sarcasm is very risky, Now, the Lord Himself uses sarcasm. He's perfectly holy. The Holy Spirit in this passage through Paul uses sarcasm. Divinely inspired words here, especially in verses 8 through 13, are sarcastic. They're getting the attention of the hearers. So, sarcasm isn't always sinful, but it is risky for us. But here it's not sinful. This is God getting the attention of these worldly Corinthian Christians. Why does Paul use this approach? Why does Paul go at them in this way? Here are a few reasons. Some in the Corinthian church were enamored with being like the world. They wanted to be like the world. They wanted to be acceptable to the world. That's why they favored certain pastors, Apollos over Paul, because he was more acceptable because he was like the philosophers of that culture. He was very strong in terms of his oratory. He was very gifted in how he spoke. So, they really wanted the favor of the world and thought, if the world's going to follow Christ, it's got to come through someone who's as gifted as their human philosophers, and they bought into that. So, some in the Corinthian church were enamored with being like the world Some in the Corinthian church had evidently forgot the message of the cross, forgot the power that's in the message 
of Jesus Christ being crucified. They forgot the power that that brings. Some were actually wealthy. This was a wealthy area, a wealthy city. Some were wealthy, and there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but there's temptation there. They were wealthy, and they prided themselves in their worldly strength and their worldly abilities. Evidently, the Corinthian church, the time Paul's writing, had a certain amount of favor with the society around them. And I think Paul has a problem with that in this passage. They weren't enough of a threat, if you will, to society. They weren't bringing people the message of righteousness and judgment and forgiveness of sin. They were just kind of looking like the rest of the world. So, Corinth was fine with them. And that's an issue that Paul has. What's more, and we'll see this at the end of the passage, some of them were arrogantly critical of the apostles' ministry. They talked a lot, complained a lot, if you will, questioned a lot the ministry of the Apostle Paul, while they themselves had no power of the Holy Spirit in their own living. One writer says this, these Corinthians are lucky. Already they enjoy favors that the apostles dare only hope for. They, the Corinthian church, no longer hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're filled. In the theory of the Spirit, they have eaten to satisfaction. In short, the Messianic kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, seems to have come to Corinth, and these people have been given their thrones while the apostles are placed with the servants. So we're going to look at this passage in two parts, two reminders for the Christian who needs to remember our cross and the difficulty of discipleship. Two reminders for the Christian who needs to remember our cross and the difficulty of discipleship. Now, I give you this message again in two parts, but I want to tell you that there are probably, there are most likely three types of people that have something to learn from this passage. The first person is the person doing little to nothing in the kingdom of God. You're more focused on what this world can give you, what you can get out of this world, the comfort that this world can give you, the comfort that you're aiming for in this world, and you're doing little to nothing in the kingdom of God. Now, before I go on to the second person, this is a strong passage. This is not one of the passages that you wake up Monday morning in a new week eager to teach your people. It's hard sometimes. And I think we largely understand that society today is soft, really sensitive. You can't criticize anything about anybody ever. And we know that about people outside those walls, but sometimes it's true inside the walls also. And so, I'm asking you to let the Spirit point out what the Spirit's going to point out. Don't run from it. Don't excuse it. If there's anything to own, own it, repent of it, and find favor with God again through Jesus Christ. He's gracious. One of the ways God fits us for heaven is He admonishes us and teaches us. So, there's some in here who may be doing little to nothing in terms of kingdom work and are more focused on this temporal world. There are some who would hear this message who are working for the Lord, serving, sharing the gospel, trying to disciple other people, trying to edify the church. There are probably many in this room in that boat, those working hard for the Lord who are suffering in that work. Maybe physically it's demanding. Maybe physically you're not where you once were. Maybe you've received criticism for that work 
that you're doing, trying to bring the gospel to family members and friends and they no longer want to talk to you, insulted by neighbors, criticized by other believers as you simply try to serve and love. I think that there's some encouragement for you in this passage. And then third and finally, there may be a small group who arrogantly criticize God's people who are working, who arrogantly, who arrogantly criticize the work of the ministry that's going on. And we see that in the last part of this passage. So whoever you are, may the Holy Spirit point all of us to truth and right Christian living, myself included. Again, two parts to this passage. Two reminders for the person who is needing that reminder about what it means to follow Christ, needs to remember what it means to follow the way of the cross. And when I say way of the cross, I mean Jesus taught that His followers would not only benefit by His death and resurrection, but that would in some smaller way be their path also. They would die daily. They would take up their cross to follow Him. And there would be suffering before glory, suffering before a crown. And Paul's trying to remind the Corinthians of that because evidently they're good. The world loves them. And he's saying, as it were, get in the game. Get in the game. Get some grass stains. Get some blood on your jersey. Get in the game for Jesus Christ. So let's look at the first point, verses 8 through the beginning of verse 12. Following Jesus means we will suffer. Following Jesus means we will suffer. Many of the Corinthians, not all of them, and not all of you here today, many of the Christians were obstinate, were not serving Jesus, not following Jesus, not following His path of discipleship. And Paul challenges them to live in the way of the cross. Follow Jesus. And he does it by using a word picture. We, we don't always understand what he's getting at at a first read, but if you understand something about the culture of the first century, especially first century Corinth and the Greco-Roman Empire, you understand that processions, victory processions were a thing. When someone would go conquer another land, they would come and bring the spoil back with them. And so at the beginning of that procession, and maybe it was leading into the middle of the city, maybe leading into a large area where people would look in, maybe like a coliseum, there would be this war that was won. They won and they're coming, proceeding back to this coliseum, and there'd be this parade. And in the front would be the kings and the military generals, the victors, and they'd be lauded and hailed. And behind them would be the people that they'd conquered the spoil that they had with them, that they had taken from that land. And so at the very back end, you've got the conquered people, you've got the slaves, and leading the procession are the kings, the successful ones, the popular ones. They'd come into the Colosseum, they would take their seats, and they would watch the slaves come in to be executed in the middle of the Colosseum. That's the word picture as Paul starts to talk to the Corinthians here. Verse 8, "'Already you have all you want.'" Already you've become rich. Without us, apostles, you've become kings. And would that you did reign. It'd be great if you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Because if you reigned, we could join you and we'd all be reigning together. But we're not reigning here, Paul says. Us apostles. Verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death. That's the... That's the back of that line, that back of that procession. Paul's saying, we apostles are those people. 
I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, even a spectacle to angels, angels looking and seeing the apostles who Christ has commissioned to work for Him, seeing them last of all unpopular, a spectacle to the world. We become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. All all people are looking at us, and they view us as the back of the procession. We, apostles, are fools for Christ's sake. The world considers us foolish. You believe that about human sexuality? (laughs) That's foolish. Get with the times. Yeah, they consider us foolish. You do that with your money, that with your retirement? You, do, you, you believe in who that died for you? That's foolish. That's how the apostles are viewed. That's how we're viewed. We are fools for Christ's sake. And then he says this to the Corinthian church, but you are wise in Christ. So the world considers us fools, but evidently they look at you and they think, oh, you've arrived. We are weak but you're strong. You're held in honor, but we're held in disrepute. Do you see how this isn't a commendation of the Corinthian church? He's not saying, oh, you're much more honorable than us. I mean, it's just me, Apollos, Peter, John. We're nobody. We, we, we wish we could be you guys one day. This isn't a, a commendation. This is sarcasm here. To the present hour, verse 11, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted, even attacked by others, and homeless. Reminds us of Jesus saying the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. And those following in His path, the apostles at this time had nowhere. They're homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. Now today in, in our society, a lot of times that, that that's considered to be a good thing. Oh man, look, look what that guy can do. Look what that lady can do, working with their own hands. That, that's not a commendation in this first century culture. When you work with your own hands, you're like a slave. Anybody that's anybody doesn't get their hands dirty when they work. So when Paul says we labor working with our own hands, that's really to be considered despicable in society. So Paul's saying, this is who we are, fools, hungry, thirsty, poorly dressed, buffeted, attacked, homeless, and we work with our own hands. That's why he says in verse 9, we're a spectacle. People look at us and think we're nobodies. We're in the back of the procession. But the Corinthian church, oh, they're somebodies. The world likes them the world likes them. They're wise. They're honorable. Some in the Corinthian church needed to, be, needed to remember that they've been called to follow Jesus, and when you actually follow Him faithfully, there will be suffering. We've been alleviated of much of that by God's common grace for some reason during this time in history, but how we live able to serve Christ without much persecution here is not the norm in history or the norm in the world today as Christians. And we're not to blame for that. And sometimes there is suffering that we engage in as people trying to help bring the gospel to people or show people the way of Christ. There is. There are criticisms. There are critiques. There is mockery. There is sometimes forms of persecution 
Generally speaking, the more faithful you are to Christ, the more you will suffer for it. Generally speaking. And Paul's reminding these Corinthians that they signed up to follow Jesus, and following Jesus, if you do it faithfully, will be hard. Turn to Mark 8 for this. Following Jesus is difficult. And it's not just that people today sometimes struggle with that reality. The apostles themselves struggled with this when Jesus first started teaching it. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus is teaching. Verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. Now, was Jesus John the Baptist, yes or no? No. Was Jesus Elijah? No. And he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answers, You are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. You are the Christ. Now, is Peter right here? Yes, he is. Peter gets it. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. It's not time yet for that to be fully revealed in its fullest way. So Peter gets the right answer. But listen, Peter's got a hard time with some other parts of Jesus' teaching. Next verse, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, he himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So, so Peter knows you're the Messiah. We get it. You are the Christ. And then Jesus says, and I'm going to die. And I told you as we went through Mark, the Son of Man was a victorious title. And he's saying the Son of Man's going to suffer and die. And Peter kind of does one of these, like, wait, wait, what? Uh, that doesn't compute with me. Verse 32, and he said this plainly. It wasn't hard to understand. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's always a good thing to do with God. <laughs> I say sarcastically. <laughs> Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. By turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Evidently, it's one of the things of God to have the Messiah suffer first before the victory. And it's a thing of man to avoid the suffering and to just have the victory. And then Jesus taught this. And so he's like, he like doubled downs on the difficulty. It's one thing for Peter to hear that Jesus is going to suffer and die. Oh, no. Th this is not good, God. This is not good, Jesus. No, no, no. You cannot suffer and die. But then Jesus takes it a step further. Verse 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, so you want to follow in my way, my way of death? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever will save his life in the future will lose it first. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed? when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So, 
I bring you there to show you that the people of God, from the time Jesus started teaching this, His disciples have always struggled with the idea of suffering. First, they struggled with the idea that He would suffer, and then they struggled with the idea that they themselves would follow in that way. And that's what Jesus teaches about following Christ. That's why when we present the gospel to people, it's important to tell them what Jesus has taught. It's important to tell them to count the cost. Now, consider this before you sign up to follow Jesus. Are you signing up to follow Him so that He heals you and fixes every problem you have in this life right now? I hope not because He doesn't promise that. Or do you sign up to follow Him because He promises glory after the suffering? And listen, He alone has the words of eternal life. So if you want to avoid suffering and therefore want to walk away from Jesus, which is the message of the book of Hebrews, if you want to avoid suffering and therefore walk away from the words of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the question you could ask is, well, then where are you going to go? In Him, He alone possesses the words of eternal life. So either you suffer now as His child and follower who He cares for in that suffering, or you suffer later forever for rejecting the gift that God has given to you in Jesus Christ. So sign up for suffering with following Jesus and receive the reward in heaven rather than trying to avoid suffering in this temporal life and suffering forever apart from Him. Strong language. And Paul's writing to the Corinthians to tell them there's no suffering here. And you could start to then question their faithfulness to the way of the cross, to their following of Jesus. Anthony Thistleton, who's a a great scholar in, in the area of this book in 1 Corinthians, says this, the apostles seem to be of no more importance than the gladiators who shed their blood in the arena to provide an amusement and a public spectacle for the people. So, the apostles are like those gladiator slaves coming into the Colosseum to amuse the crowd as they die. That's what the apostles are like here. And then he says this, surely the Corinthians should be ashamed to lounge in the best seats of that Colosseum and to applaud or even boo. It's as if the Corinthians are sitting in the luxury boxes of that Colosseum watching the apostles suffer and think, glad I'm not there. That's the picture here. So, how do we respond to verses 8 through 12a, the beginning of verse 12? I would say this, aim to be faithful to live as Christ's servant. Aim to be faithful. Remember what Paul told us earlier? It's appointed to a servant to be found faithful. It's required of a servant to be found faithful. That's what we aim for. This is not Paul or me telling you, listen, aim for suffering. It's not that we aim for suffering. We aim to be faithful. And when we're faithful to the Lord, use our time, our resources, our mouths, our minds, when we use those for the Lord's purposes, that will bring some suffering. You know that to be true, right? Many of you suffering today with friends, family members, co-workers, just simply because you want to love them to the Lord. Some of you suffer and you're slaving over a Bible study and you want to teach your home group and you get criticized for the way you do it or the resource you use and you're simply trying to help people. Does it mean you're perfect? No. But you receive that criticism often. 
It's a thing that Christians have always received when they seek to serve the Lord. So don't aim for suffering. Aim to be faithful and be prepared when suffering comes. Secondly, first, following Jesus means we will suffer. Second thing Paul's trying to show us, following Jesus means we should suffer well. Following Jesus means that we should suffer well. Paul talks to this church about how to suffer. When they do suffer for being faithful to Jesus, here's how to do it. Again, picking up in the middle of verse 12, he then switches to a family discussion. So he's talked about the arena or the Colosseum and the apostles coming in to suffer and the Corinthians looking at them and witnessing all of this. And Paul's saying, hey, join us down here. Get in the game. Get in the fight. Get in the spiritual battle with us. Be part of the suffering. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Then here he says, now let's suffer well. Now let's suffer well. And he talks about, he talks to the Corinthian church as if they were his family. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We've become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I don't write these things to make you ashamed. He's not trying to hurt them for hurting them's sake, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, and here's the key, be imitators of me. And what that means in its context is follow me in suffering well. So, so suffer, but follow, follow me. Suffer like I'm suffering. And how did Paul suffer? Like Christ suffered. So it's really a call, as we'll see later on from Paul's words, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me in suffering as I follow Christ in His suffering. Again, 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. Paul sent Timothy so they would understand how Paul was suffering faithfully for Jesus, so that they would suffer faithfully for Jesus. And this wasn't just something that he wants for the Corinthian church. To remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. And Peter did this too. Remember when we studied 1 Peter? One of the great themes of 1 Peter is how to suffer in a hostile world as a Christian. And one of Peter's great themes was suffer like Jesus. Suffer well. Don't revile when you're reviled. So the apostles had this message as they were suffering to do the work of God, work for God, working in His kingdom. As they were suffering, they're telling followers of Christ, suffer well. Don't sin just because you're suffering. Don't return evil for evil. Where'd they get that from? Jesus. When reviled, we bless. Again, back up in verse 12. When reviled, we bless. When we're spoken against, we speak for that person. When someone reviles us, how dare you tell me? that I'm in sin because of the choices I'm making in my life. You're hateful, you're bigoted, you're mean-spirited. When we get that, we don't say, well, you know what you are? We say, I pray God's blessing on you. I pray that you would know and be blessed and favored by the living God. I want your good. You want my destruction, <laughs> my elimination. I want your good. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. It doesn't say when persecuted, we complain. 
how dare the United Nations not do anything about Christian persecution? We just keep enduring. We just keep enduring. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we entreat. The word entreat is the same root word given for the Holy Spirit, the, the, the one that comes alongside of us. So when we're slandered by others, we come alongside them and talk to them. We entreat. We try to have a conversation. They treat us the way they do with their mouth, and we try to come alongside them and talk with them. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. I almost titled this message, you are the scum of the world. thought that'd be a little too far, okay? But that's what Paul's saying. We're the scum of the world. We're considered to be the scum of the world, the refuse of all things, the things that after all said and done, the great meal is eaten, everything's done, the stuff that you, you know, put the fork off into the plate, just or into the garbage, the last, the remnants, the refuse, the gross things in the bottom of your garbage, you know, things that are all wet and moist and everything, that's, Paul's saying, that's how we're viewed. That, that's it. And that's how Jesus was viewed. The scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed. He's not trying to wound the Corinthians so that they have some wound that he's happy about. He's trying to wound them so that they would come and be made whole in Christ and follow Christ's ways. I don't write these things to shame you, to make you ashamed, but to admonish you, to warn you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. Evidently, people were talking to the Corinthians about how they should be living as Christians, and Paul's saying, hey, 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 I led you to Christ here. I was your father in the gospel. I led you to Christ. Listen to me. I can help you follow him. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. And again, here's, a, here's a, an argument for reading verse by verse, even in your own daily devotionals. Don't just read one random verse that's pulled out of context. Be imitators of me. In the context, it's suffer like I'm suffering, Right? I urge you then, be imitators of me. So what would it like, be like for them to imitate Paul? Well, to faithfully proclaim the gospel, the word of the cross, as he told us earlier in chapter 2 and 3. Faithfully proclaim the word of the cross, and when you are reviled, bless. When you are persecuted, endure. When you are slandered, entreat. Follow me. Be imitators of me. Do what I'm doing here. And again, that's why he sent Timothy to remind them of his ways. Now, as I said earlier, why does Paul live like this? Why doesn't he just complain that society should be more kind to him? Why doesn't he just petition the city council of Corinth and say, this is why Christianity should be acceptable to you? Why doesn't he do that? Why does he just keep suffering? Why does he just keep preaching and suffering, preaching and suffering, preaching, working, suffering? Why does he keep doing that? Because that's what his Lord did. Listen to what Jesus taught. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. 
Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Friends, Jesus told us to pray for those who persecute Christians, to pray for those who are hostile to Christians, not to revile them in return. I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Who is the Son of the Father? Jesus. When you do what Jesus does when He was maligned, you will be considered also sons of your Father in heaven. We, we follow the way of Christ. We are with Him. We are His brothers, if you will, and sisters. Jesus concludes this section says, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God is in his common grace good to sinners, those who rebel against him, so you can be good to them as well. Now right here, this grates against our flesh. But if someone criticizes me and I just lay down and take it, it makes me look weak to people who are watching. And you're right. It does. Are we living for the applause of man or the commendation of our Father? We want to look strong in the eyes of man. We want to look strong in the eyes of the world, just like the Corinthians did with the people around them. We want to look strong. I would submit what's better than looking strong? Looking like Jesus. Look like Jesus. And the one who loses his life temporarily will save it. One day God will give you that commendation. Well done. You held your tongue. You took the blows for me. Well done. Well done. We need to be reminded that 2,000 years since Christ, it's no less true that he calls us to take the blows for him and to not revile in return, but to be Christ when we're attacked. And notice the importance, the importance of seeing others who do this. One of the great blessings in your Christian life will, to see, uh, will be to see other faithful brothers and sisters who suffer well for Christ. That motivates, that, that is life-giving. To see, for you yourself to have a hardships because of your commitment to Christ and to look and see someone in your Bible study or in your church or in your family who is also suffering for Christ and they're suffering well for Him. That is a great encouragement. It's a great motivation. We have people doing that in this church, people who suffer well for Jesus. I was talking to a brother just this week about his suffering to represent Christ well, and I was just commending him, you're doing that. Look for people who suffer well as they serve Christ. Paul tells the Corinthians, follow me, be imitators of me as I suffer for Christ. I told you um, before, I can't remember when it was, um, about something that Pastor Bobby Blakey experienced. But you remember Pastor Bobby came here this summer, preached to you in August. Um, I think I told you a story about this, but I want to highlight an aspect of it. Um, back when he was a youth pastor in Southern California, he, uh, a, a number of the students in his youth ministry, they started coming to his youth ministry because they were, prior to that, in, involved in a homosexual lifestyle. They had the gospel preached to them, and they turned from their sin and started following Christ, and their lives changed. 
And so they started then telling their fellow students at their schools about the power of God to change them from living the homosexual lifestyle to living the way that God had called them to live in the Scriptures. And so they were, this youth group started evangelizing a number of the people in the homosexual community. Now, do you think that went over well? No. So fast forward a few weeks, and all of a sudden online, there's all of this speech aimed at Compass Bible Church Elisa Viejo, and specifically their youth group, and there are news reports, local news, television news reports about the things that this church is doing. And it wasn't painting them in a positive light. Pastor Bobby getting death threats at his home where he lived with his family. Now, what's good in all of that? We, we would say, oh, that's horrible, and to a degree it is. In a sense, it is. But also, there's so much to commend there, isn't there? Taking a stand for Christ, trying to love people to Christ, teach people to Christ, bring the gospel to people, the power of the gospel to people. I think one of the great things that came from that is those people watching their pastor suffer, be attacked, even persecuted, threatened, those students were forced to ask, where am I with Jesus? And Bobby will say, I, we talked even this week about this reality. He said some students left, left Christ. I don't want to be part of that. And he said, but so many of them stayed stayed committed to Christ, and took the blows. That's good for them to see. Following Jesus sometimes means that we're not the most favorite family members, and this isn't an excuse to be jerks to people. Jesus talked a lot about being winsome, even gentle in how we deal with false teachers in 2 Timothy. So there's not, there's not a license to be a jerk but this is saying, as we are faithful to preach the gospel and love people and point them to Christ, we will not be the favorite. We will not be the ones that get invited everywhere. We will not be the ones that people want to continue talking to. But friends, we will be found faithful. So let's suffer well for him. What's the application? It's in the passage. When you're reviled, bless. Pray for these people to be blessed. Pray for them not because of their reviling, but because they would, so they would see Christ repent and turn and, be, and receive blessing from God. When reviled, bless. When persecuted, endure. Romans 5, Lord, give me the character. G give me the strength. Strengthen me so that I can endure. When slandered, come alongside, entreat. And imitate those who suffer well as a Christian. Think, who do you know that goes through similar things that you're going through as you seek to be faithful to Christ, and who does that well? Follow them. Read Christian biographies. Talk to people in your church who you barely know, but you know that they are suffering well as they seek to follow Christ. Talk to them. Learn from them. Ask them to pray with you. Suffer well. Follow those who are suffering well. So Paul calls them to imitate him and how he suffers for the cause of Christ. And then, verse 18, he speaks specifically to some in this church who are criticizing him while they themselves failed to live a spiritually powerful life. He says in verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Now there's two thoughts about what that might mean. 
these people are arrogant because Paul sent Timothy, and they're saying, Paul should be here addressing us himself. So we're, we deserve Paul, not this guy, Timothy. That's one school of thought. Is it maybe that? Or the other thought is, is Paul not coming and they're saying, we don't need him to come. We don't, we don't need Paul in his words to come and teach us. We're good. There's an arrogance there. Either way, whatever you think that is, either way, they're critical of the Apostle Paul and his ministry. And, by extension, they're critical of God. Verse 19, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. So they're critical of the Apostle Paul, and his ministry is all in the hands of God, whether he gets to Corinth or doesn't. It's all in God's hands, but they're critical. There's this arrogant criticism of the Apostle Paul. I'll come to you soon if the Lord wills, verse 19, and I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but I'll find out about their power. So he already hears the chirping. He hears the talking. He hears the criticism. He's heard of it. He knows of it. Some are arrogant. He's writing them this letter saying, I I know there are people criticizing how I'm trying to lead you and teach you and shepherd you. Some are arrogant in doing that criticism. When I come and find out, when I get there, I'm not going to find out their talk. I already know about that. But I'm going to see whether their power is there. Are they living these spiritually powerful lives? For the kingdom of God doesn't consist in talk, but in power. It's really a rebuke to these people. Hey, let's close the mouth and let's look at how you're living. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Do I need to come and bring harsh words when I'm in your presence? Or with a spirit of gentleness? It's really calling on them to respond to this letter before he gets there. So evidently there are people who are talking about Paul, complaining about Paul, criticizing Paul, and they themselves are not living in the power of the Spirit. So lots of criticism, but where is their Christian love? A lot of criticism, but where is their joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? So they think that they're somebody because they critique the ministry, but there's no spiritual power coming from their life. Paul's saying, I hear the words, I'll come and see whether the power's there. Strong language from the Apostle Paul. This reminds me, and I think there's so many parallels here to this passage about something President Teddy Roosevelt said. It's one of his most famous quotes called the man in the arena. Some of you have heard of this. Teddy Roosevelt working himself to the bone to try to serve the nation and just criticism after criticism after criticism. And that's not saying that some criticism is, isn't good or right. That's not saying that the Apostle Paul or pastors or Bible study leaders, whoever it may be, is always perfectly doing things right. That's not saying that. But it's saying while you don't demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, while you're not in the game, be careful about how you criticize those who are simply trying to do their best to do the work of God. Be careful. It's the, it's the lady who, or I don't know if it's a lady or a man, the person that criticized Dwight Moody. I don't like the way you evangelize. And Moody said, okay, I'm open. How do you do it? Well, I, I don't do much of it. Moody said, I like my way of doing it badly better than your way of not doing it at all. Listen to what Roosevelt said. 
It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. So again, inspired by the Apostle Paul, inspired, I'm sorry, inspired by the Holy Spirit through the words of the Apostle Paul, if there are any critics in the stands here today, would you please get out of the stands and into the competition and the battle with us? Evangelize the lost, disciple the people of God, edify other believers, and do so humbly while spurring on your brothers and sisters instead of criticizing them. You are their family, not their referee. Get in the game with us. That's why at the end of the letter, and John reminded us of this earlier, he tells the Corinthian church, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For those who are in the spiritual battle, who is a much bigger group here, for those who are in the spiritual battle, know that as you are a spectacle, and as you sometimes feel like scum, that God rewards His workers. God promises to reward His workers who are striving to be faithful. He said this in chapter 3, verses 13 to 14, didn't He? Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. There are rewards coming for faithful servants. It's not whether you're criticized that God will judge you. It's whether you're found faithful. And if you're faithful, be ready for the criticism. But God will reward. God will reward. Following Christ means that we suffer and that we should suffer well. I'll remind you of these words from Matthew 5. Jesus said this, Rejoice and be glad. And He's talking about when you suffer. That's a hard command to obey. Rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecute the prophets who were before you. When you suffer for Christ, you're following in a line, a long line of godly men and women who have suffered before you and who will receive a reward from the Father. And then in the next inspired letter that we have to the Corinthians from Paul, the fourth letter that he sent them in total, or the fourth letter in order, he says this, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When you suffer for Christ, know that the glory to come will not even compare to the level of suffering that you've gone through in this life. Please hold on to that promise as you suffer. My beloved friends, my beloved brothers and sisters, some of you suffering very greatly, and I wish I could just take it away from you. As you suffer, do not forget that promise. It's a momentary light affliction in comparison. Hold on. One more day. One more day. 
sounds weird to remind Christians that we've signed up for a life of suffering in a way. (laughs) We've signed up to follow the way of Jesus. We've signed up to experience, not to the same degree, we've signed up to experience some of the things that He's experienced. We share in the sufferings of Christ. It's hard to think about that sometimes, but we come to a passage that teaches that, we need to hear it. We need to be reminded of that. I think it'd be good for us, I know we sung this a couple of weeks ago, but at the end of our service we'll sing the song again, Jesus on my cross I've taken. And I'd encourage you to sing it as a renewed commitment to Christ. Whatever you call me to, I will go through because I have you. Reminds me of Psalm 73 where Asaph is saying that whatever he goes through, though my flesh and my heart may fail, God is the strength of my life, my portion forever. We may lose family and friends and popularity, and we might be a spectacle to the world, but we have Jesus always. We have His Spirit. We have the Comforter. We have the promises that He gives. We have everything we need for life and godliness. We have Him. We have our Lord. So we'll sing these words, and I'd encourage you in a few moments to pray them as a commitment to the Lord again. Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. From now on, you're everything to me. Let's pray. Father, give us strength in whatever ways that you allow us to suffer for you. Give us a greater hope in your promises than we have discouragement about the present situation we're in. Get us all in the game. We have a limited time to proclaim your gospel and to edify your bride. So give us ways to do that even now, even this week. Bring people into our paths that we can seek to represent Christ to, to speak Christ to. Father, may you come and find, you send your son, may you send your son and find a bride who is ready and working and faithful when he arrives. I pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen.